you have your Bible, you can open it to Job chapter 2, verse 10. Job 2, verse 10. Horatio Spafford was a successful lawyer and businessman in Chicago. The lovely wife, five children. In 1871, he lost much of his business in the Chicago fire, while that same year losing his young son to pneumonia. The business eventually turned around, and two years later, they decided to take a trip to Europe, cross the Atlantic. At the last minute, Horatio was called to stay behind to attend some business. And so his wife and children boarded the ship, but only one of them would get off. Four days into their journey, their ship collided with another vessel, and within 12 minutes, the ship was totally sunk into the ocean. The four children drowned. Can you imagine being the mother who vigorously tried to save her children, but they sunk. A sailor in a rowboat eventually found Anna and saved her, and nine days later, she arrived in Wales and telegraphed this message to her husband. Saved, alone, what shall I do? Perhaps these words capture the heart of a suffering Christian, saved, alone, what shall I do? We are saved. Yes, we know that the Lord has paid for our sins, but in a world of suffering, we feel alone. Not that there are not people around us, but we feel destitute, abandoned, wondering, where are you, Lord? Wondering, What shall I do? So tonight in our text, we hear a response to this question, what shall I do? When sorrows come, what shall I do? And here is my main point, which I hope captures this verse in its context. Since we are not sovereign in suffering, we must entrust ourselves to the sovereign one. Since we are not sovereign in suffering, we must entrust ourselves to the sovereign one. I I have two points for you. Both of them are questions. Simple enough, point one, how shall we receive suffering? How shall we receive suffering? And point two, how shall we hope in suffering? So read the text with me says this, Job is responding to his wife, and he says, Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. In our text, we find ourselves overhearing a conversation. But this is not the first conversation in the book of Job that we're privileged to overhear. And we can only understand this conversation if we understand the first conversation. You see, Job's story is a tragedy, a trial, and finally, a triumph. So we open the book of Job, and we see Satan, that great accuser. He enters the presence of the Lord, and the Lord points out his servant, Job. 
and asked if he has considered him, since he is a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. And Satan challenges the Lord, noting that Job only blesses God because the Lord has blessed him. If he were to take away this protection, Job would curse God. So the Lord replies to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand, only against him. Do not stretch out your hand. The next day, Job loses all of his possessions and his children. And the servants arrive with this tragic news, like cascading waves upon him. And his response, Then Job arose and tore his robe, and shaved his head, and fell on the ground, and worshipped. This is unexpected. He worships the Lord. And the text says in chapter 1 that in all that Job did, he did not sin or charge God with wrong. So Satan returns to the Lord, and the Lord asks him again about Job. He says, he still holds fast to his integrity. Although you incited me against him to destroy him, Without reason. And Satan essentially responds, He only holds fast because you have not touched his body. If you will bring ruin to his body and flesh, he will curse you to your face. So the Lord allows him to test Job again. Now look at the text, Job 2, starting in verse 9, says this So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with lonesome loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head and he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes and then his wife said to him do you still hold fast to your integrity curse God and die but he said to her you speak as one of the foolish women would speak shall we receive good from God And shall we not receive evil? And all this, Job did not sin with his lips. How shall we receive suffering? I want you to notice this word evil in our text. If you were like me when you first read it, you wondered, can the Lord give, that is, do evil? So it's helpful to see that this word can be translated as either disaster, adversity, or evil. And depending on the context, you can understand its meaning. And it is a slight distinction, but it's actually captured through the book of Job. You see, some of these trials, some some think, they see these trials in Job's life and they think, this is a curse from God on account of his works. This is Job's friends. Others read this and they think, God himself is evil for arranging such a bitter providence. This is Job's wife. She is ready to curse God and die. And she wants Job to do the same. And still others may see them for what they are. Trials, yes. Disaster, yes. But not given by an evil God. Not given with evil intent. And not finally for the sake of evil. Brothers and sisters, what can we do when the mighty hand of God weighs down upon us? When the cancer returns? When miscarriage occurs? 
when a loved one spurns you, whether a spouse or a child, when hopes for a job or marriage don't seem to come, when friendships are ruined by the shallow popularity contest that is high school, when the world warped writhes in, in a hideous way, when the earth trembles and the mountains shake, when sorrows like sea billows roll, what shall we do? I pray that you, like Job, would see that since we are not sovereign in suffering, we must entrust ourselves to the sovereign one, to trust that God gives and works in trials for our good and his glory, to believe that his grace is sufficient and his power is made perfect in our weakness. And it is this contrast here between Job and his wife that I want you to dwell on for a moment. Look back at the text. It says, In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. And here, I think, is one clear application. We can compound our suffering and even sin by the way in which we suffer. We can compound our suffering and even sin by the way in which we suffer. This is Job's wife. But we cannot help but see that often we are more like her than we would like to admit. For how often do we desperately want the Lord to grow us, but only on our terms? We love God until he unseats us from his throne. We honor God with our lips when life goes according to our plan, but when he upends that plan, we're bitter Wondering if he cares for us. Often, trials reveal what we're worshiping. God plans, including trials and troubles, are a means to humble us and to manifest his sufficiency and grace towards us. And this is only true when we see that he is the one who has sent the trial. Trial Spurgeon a man well acquainted with grief, writes this. He says, It would be a very sharp and trying experience to me to think that I have an affliction which God never sent me, that the bitter cup was never filled by his hands, that my trials were never measured out by him, nor sent to me by his arrangement of their weight and quantity. Brothers and sisters, God sends and uses trials. And we must examine what is revealed in our hearts by our response to them. So I ask you, how do you respond when suffering comes? Will you speak as Job's wife? Or will you, like Job, entrust yourself to God? This brings us to my second point. How shall we hope in suffering? In the book of Job, we're privileged to know why he is suffering, even though he does not. We see his friends come and they misconstrue his situation. And finally, finally and gloriously, the book comes to an end and the Lord enters the scene in Job 38. 
And then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? In the next several chapters, the Lord puts Job on trial, questioning him. And again and again, the silent answer is, I was not there. I do not know. And Job makes this final confession, the confession that we must wake, we must make. And we read it this morning. He says this, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Here is Job entrusting himself to the sovereign one, admitting his infirmary and the Lord's infinity. And this is our hope. That since we are not sovereign in suffering, we can trust in our sovereign God. But brothers and sisters, you must see something. That Job is only a shadow of the true substance. For there was another righteous sufferer who entrusted himself to God. It is Christ Jesus, our Lord, who was not merely accused by Satan, struck by Satan, but he struck Satan back. He is the one who came to crush Satan. He is the one who stands in the gap for poor, wretched, sinful sufferers such as us. He the righteous one, endured the sting of the cross that we might receive the sweetness of salvation. And for all those who repent of their sin and trust in him, he will save. If you're here tonight and you do not know the Savior, I would implore you not merely to be like Job, but to entrust yourself to Job's Lord. To see Job as a foreshadowing of the one whose suffering was not merely an example, but a substitution. This is our hope. This is it. That Christ suffered for our sins, and by his wounds we can be healed. By his wounds we can endure, knowing that suffering precedes glory. Brothers and sisters, Christ is our hope in suffering. Earlier, I told you the tragic tale of Horatio Spafford. And some of you may know this, but he is the author of the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. After he received the news of his daughter's death, he booked a ship to meet his wife. And four days in, the captain called him up to the cabin to let him know that this is the place where his children died. And this is when he composed this hymn. In a moment, we will stand to sing this song together. And I hope as you sing these lyrics, you feel his pain. A pain you may relate to. But with him, you entrust yourself to God, knowing that he has made your soul well. Knowing that since we are not sovereign 
and suffering, we must entrust ourselves to the Sovereign One. Pray with me.